you are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. With me today is my co-host, Michelle Jewell Shaw of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Jeremy, and hello to all of our listeners. We're recording this on May 27th, 2020, and although some things are starting to open up, we are still in the era of social distancing, and we're recording this via Zoom. And this is a special edition of Lighthearted. For this episode, we're traveling across the pond to London, England, to learn about what is possibly the most interesting repurposing of a lighthouse I have ever heard of. Michelle, please help me tell our listeners about the Trinity Buoy Wharf Lighthouse in London and today's guest, Jem Finer. Sure, Jeremy. In an area of London known as the Docklands, where the River Lee meets the River Thames, is a part of the waterfront known as the Trinity Buoy Wharf. And on that wharf is London's only lighthouse. The lighthouse at the Trinity Buoy Wharf was never used for navigation. The wharf itself was also used by Trinity House, the English Lighthouse Authority, for the manufacture of chains, buoys, and light buoys. The first lighthouse on the wharf, designed by Trinity House engineer James Walker and built in 1852, was demolished in the late 1920s. The lighthouse that still stands, also known as the Bow Creek Lighthouse, Blackwall's Experimental Lighthouse, or simply the Experimental Lighthouse, was completed in 1866. It was designed by engineer James Douglas. Both of the lighthouses were used by Trinity House, the English Lighthouse Authority, for the training of prospective lighthouse keepers. The scientist Michael Faraday also carried out experiments there. The Trinity Buoy Wharf was closed in 1988. The site has been developed as a center for the arts and cultural activities. A light ship at the wharf was converted into a recording studio and there are art and dance studios at the site. Musician and composer Jem Finer has repurposed the lighthouse in a unique way. Since 2001, The lighthouse has been looked after by the Long Player Trust. Jim Finer's ambient sound piece called Long Player started playing in the lighthouse at the stroke of midnight just as the year 2000 began. It's been playing ever since, and the intention is that it won't repeat until midnight on December 31st, 2999. Long Player is composed for singing bowls, a type of ancient bell. Long Player is based at the lighthouse but it can also be heard at several listening posts worldwide and is also streaming online. Long Player was developed and composed by Jem Finer with the support and collaboration of Art Angel, an organization that has been commissioning and producing ambitious projects by contemporary artists for the last two decades. Since studying computer science in the 1970s, Jem Finer has worked in a variety of fields, including photography, film, music, and art installation. He was also a founding member of the Pogues, the popular English Celtic punk band. As a fan of the Pogues, I was excited to learn about Long Player and its home at the Lighthouse in London. I had the pleasure of speaking with Jem Finer just a few days ago. Let's listen to that conversation now. I'm speaking with musician, composer, and artist Jem Finer about the experimental lighthouse of the Trinity Buoy Wharf and his long player sound piece. Thanks so much for joining me today for the podcast via Zoom, Jem. It's a great pleasure. 
Before we discuss Long Player, I'd like to talk a little bit about the background of the lighthouse and the Trinity Buoy Wharf. Uh, the area was known as Bow Creek, and it has a long and interesting history going back to Roman times. But starting in the early 1800s, it was used by Trinity House, the Lighthouse Authority. Before we talk about the lighthouse specifically, could you say a little bit more about the use of the site by Trinity House, especially the Trinity Buoy Wharf? Trinity House, as you said, they were responsible for uh, the lighthouses and light ships and light buoys all around the British Isles. So um, for 200 years or so, all the equipment necessary you know, for lighting lighthouses and buoys, etc., um, all the chains, they were all built uh, on Trinity Boy Wharf. It was a you know, it's big industrial space. That, that went on until, I think, the 1970s. And the lighthouse that stands on the wharf today was actually the second of two lighthouses there, but they were never used for navigation. What was the purpose of the lighthouses, exactly? They were both experimental, so um, as well as manufacturing and repairing all the equipment, it was a sort of center for research into new ways of lighting. Yeah, so the first, the first lighthouse was perched on a, on a roof, you know, a sort of angled roof. And that was fine as long as the lighting equipment was light enough to be supported by the roof. But um, when this guy, James Douglas, took over as the sort of scientist in residence, I think in the 1860s, the stuff he was developing was far too heavy. So they, they built a sort of standalone lighthouse next to the chain store, which is uh, what, you know, you, you see there still today. And, and it, you know, it puzzles people. People, you know, they say, why is there a lighthouse? You know, like as if the ships on the Thames are going to sort of, you know, come hurtling into the bank there. But no, yeah, yeah. The the reason being that um, they were purely experimental. So, for instance, in this the one that exists now, they sort of develop you know new lighting techniques, new lenses, etc. Put them up in the lighthouse, and then they'd sort of switch them on when it got dark, and and travel about six miles to the east, to uh, to a hill, and they'd stand on the hill and have a look and see you know how efficient they're then new lights were. So, yeah, the whole place was um, a hive of industry and experimentation. Well, why don't we move on to Long Player? I know more about that. You're best known to the public as a member of the very popular band, The Pogues. And, Jim, you played banjo and other instruments in The Pogues, and you wrote or co-wrote many of the band's songs. But you also have a very varied background in computers and other kinds of music and art forms. What led you to create Long Player? Well, it was kind of the logical conclusion of a kind of lifetime of pondering the mysteries of time, how it ebbs and flows, how we experience time really as opposed to the time of a clock, I suppose, which had always fascinated me and frightened me at times. And, you know, I mean, I, I think it's probably the same for most people. I kind of, I suppose I have a slightly obsessive side to my nature, which is, you know, I always like taking things apart, see how they work, whether physically or, or mentally, as it were. And it occurred to me that maybe there was a way of making a sort of, you know, a thought experiment or sort of experiment with, with time by creating something very long. And I, I had that thought for 
for many years, but never really knew what to do with it until the mid-1990s when people were talking a lot about the millennium. They, they weren't really talking about, you know, anything beyond the year 2000. It was just, you know, they're talking about maybe a, a celebration for a, a few nights or for a year in between two spans of a thousand years. Actually, that I think that had always been the case all my life. You know, like when I was born in the 50s, you know, the year 2000 with this sort of sci-fi deadline, at which point all, you know, futuristic devices would, would suddenly be in place. But there was never much thought given to anything after that. So anyway, I, I kind of thought, well, maybe it's more interesting to consider the, the millennium as, you know, as a thousand year span and uh, try and make something to make sense of that. So I thought, okay, well, maybe, okay, I'll make, I'll try and conduct this experiment I've had in mind by creating a space to imagine or experience a thousand years. Then I thought more about it and, and you know, how I could do it and thought, well, maybe, you know, given my limited skills in many areas, at least with music, I thought I might be able to make, make something, you know, and, and given that music is time-based and, you know, without time, music would not exist, you know, it sort of seemed, yeah, okay, that's the, that's a very sensible way to proceed. So, you know, I, I started on that tack and actually, I mean, I very quickly, once I'd had that idea, wrote something, which is a thousand year long piece of music. It wasn't very interesting, but it was a sort of proof of concept. So that's how it all started, really, yeah. So what, um, maybe more specifically, is Long Player? Well, Long Player is, well, I mean, it's, a, you know, it's a, uh, on the one hand, it's um, a thousand year long piece of music, mm-hmm. um, which is in fact a loop. It repeats every thousand years, and within that loop, it never repeats itself. But, you know, I think, in a sense, the, so, you know, it's the music, but for me, the music is, and always was, in a sense, secondary to the music being a carrier for something else, which is, you know, it's, it's this marker for the, a thousand year duration. So, you know, as you experience it, you're experiencing a very tiny fragment of a very large, vast, long continuum. And not even a linear continuum in a sense, it's, it's circular. So in a, in a sense, it, it's an everlasting thing that repeats every thousand years. You know, without going into the whys and wherefores and how it, how it actually works and it's, the scores created, what's kind of more, became, more important and became very apparent as soon as it started is that okay, you've got this thing that's going to last a long time. Well, how do you keep it going? And, and that was something that was, you know, had to be addressed quite early on in the compositional process because, you know, I realised in conversations with people that though I was using computers to kind of model different ways of making such a score and had in mind, okay, well, a computer can play it, then you think, well, hang on, how long are computers going to be around for? And, you know, as we know, computers and their operating systems change so rapidly. You know, you're always playing sort of catch-up, you're always rewriting stuff and 
grading stuff. And so it became apparent very early on that it had to be composed in a way that it could be adaptable to any technological conditions, to any technology, you know, so it's playable by anything, mm-hmm. whether that's a computer, an iPhone, or a few human beings with instruments in a, in a, in a school. That was a big factor of, of how it got composed, but it also became a big thing once it started of then the social aspect of how you keep it going, because there's no one way you can set it up that guarantees it carries on. And secondly, I, I've no desire for it to just play on endlessly unless people want it to. So for me, the interest is it, in its longevity is that people take a responsibility for it. And it, because if people take a responsibility, then they're engaging with a responsibility um, forward in time, passing something on. And they've in turn taken that on from people that exist before them. So it, it's this sort of creation of a, a kind of social organism that spans generations. And, and therefore, hopefully, begins to address in people's thinking how you can plan for the future on longer durations than we tend to as a human race. I'm under no illusions that long play is going to save the world or something. I, I don't think that will happen at all. But it's just my own way of trying to cope with a number of frustrations. You know, one, how time works in a sense, but... I think more importantly how the world's in a sort of bit of a sad mess and getting worse by the sort of minute. And a lot of that's down to very short-sighted decisions that the people that govern us and run corporations tend to make, self-interested thoughts. So it's, it's my way of at least trying to look at things in a different way, maybe a more sustainable way. Well, it makes sense to me, and having listened to it, it makes a, a lot of sense to me. Uh, which brings me to another question. Could you explain the role of the Tibetan singing bowls? Yeah, they, they have a very, um, I mean, their role is crucial, actually. I refer to them now just as singing bowls because they're kind of common to many cultures and countries in the, you know, in the East and they are, you know, for, for anyone that's not familiar with them, they're literally a bowl of a, 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 an alloy. So they're most basic. They'd be, um, they'd be brass, but they have all sorts of little other additives into them, you know, silver and whatever. Well, I suppose it sort of, it was explained to me once that, you know, there's a mystique about bowls that they're, the, the, the more metals that are in them, the, the more, precious they are and the more the better they sound but it was explained to me by someone that that's probably all down to where on a mountain someone took the ore from you know it's just what was in the the ground but anyway so they're a bowl and they're in fact what they are is is they're a bell but as opposed you know we think well i say we i mean i always thought of bells originally as you know things you had in churches and stuff and they they hang up and they have a beater inside them but these bells are different in that they're, they, you can sort of hold them in the palm of your hand like a bowl or sit them on a, on a mat on a table. And you can play them 
by striking them uh, as you kind of would uh, a church bell or that would strike itself but more interestingly you can play them by taking a a stick or a beater and and uh, running it round their rim in the same way you might run a sort of dampened finger around a wine glass and they start to resonate you get these very rich resonances ostensibly they appear to be very um, simple basic instruments but actually the what goes on in them the harmonic structures and what you hear by playing them with different materials and stroking them in different ways is is quite varied and unpredictable and no two seem to be exactly the same either you know i I spent a long time trying to work out what the instrument instrumentation for long player should be given that maybe humans had to play long player at some point in time or machines as opposed to simply computers where, where it doesn't really matter what the sound is you can use anything I sort of by process of elimination got to sort of tuned percussion because you know tuned percussion is well a it's something generally simple to play you don't need to you know you can teach people very quickly to play something you just sort of have to sort of hit or stroke they're generally very robust and strong or last over time and hold their tuning and then further process of elimination i ended up with the singing bowls and there's there's three reasons for using them there's there's one which i've just spoken about which is their durability and ability to hold their tuning for very long times but secondly the the score that creates long player the score that sort of says what events are going to happen when is completely deterministic in this way that over a thousand years no pattern will repeat but after exactly a thousand years everything will be back where it started but i was interested in the sonic side there being something unpredictable so for example you might know what's going to play what singing bowls are going to play at a certain point in time or any point in time but until you hear them you won't actually know what it's going to sound like and and what happens is they actually they because of their bell-like physics you know they they create these sinusoidal waves different overtones and when you play several together you might hear them as separate discrete instruments but also you get a, a synthesis occurring so you you get the combinations of these these different frequencies into new timbres so sometimes especially when you're making them resonate by stroking them around the rim you can get sounds that are more like choral sounds or brassy sounds or flute like sounds or even sort of electronic distorted sounds from you know if you have inharmonic overtones sort of combining so they, they so they give this unpredictability to what you're hearing that's the second reason this is the third thing if you if i if one had started long player using sounds that were very contemporary to the year 1999 or 2000 it would be probably sounding quite dated by now you know say oh that sounds so 1990s or something and the the beauty about the singing bowls is well for a start you know bell like sounds they're, they're very elemental and they have a connection with perception of time already but because the singing bowls come from such ancient traditions 
and we have a familiarity with these sort of timbres, they don't sort of have a date stamped on them. You know, they, they've got this elemental aspect. So long player, sort of, it's like it already sort of sets itself in a sort of timelessness in terms of culture. It's not, so, you know, you can't say it's rooted in any particular time. In 500 years' time, it won't be like, oh, God, that sounds so, so early 21st century. So there's those three reasons. They become that sort of crucial elements that really sort of became the key to the whole composition. I was just watching another interview with you on YouTube, and you talked about your experience with the Pogues and with Long Player. You talked about how the Pogues music took traditional Irish and Celtic music and kind of gave it a fresh spin, and you kind of related that to Long Player because you took the ancient singing bowls and you're using them in a new way. And I'm wondering if that kind of thinking uh, figures into your use of the lighthouse at all. Do you feel you're using the historical qualities of the lighthouse in some way? Does this make sense in any way? Oh, it, it makes it makes complete sense. But I mean, I have to admit that it, it, it wasn't like I thought, okay, I need a lighthouse now. Right. The lighthouse sort of appeared on the, you know, like it was, it was suggested. Michael Morris, who I worked with, you know, developing long player, he, he brought my attention to the lighthouse and, you know, it seemed like a good place. And then the more one thinks about it, like you're saying, you know, the more perfect it is because, well, A, a it's got this, it's, it's, it's this old place and it's got this tradition of experimentation with, you know, Faraday and Douglas and these people, both they weren't experimenting with sound, but they were, in, they were experimenting with light. But, and also it's got this thing where, you know, a lighthouse is a beacon, you know, it's beaming out a beam of light. And there's this sense to me always been about long player that it's, it's like a beam of sound. It's like a thread of sound in a sense, or a beam from, from the, the future that we're sort of, we're listening our way towards. So, and also um, just the construction of the space, you listen to long player in, you know, in this, the lantern room, it's like this circular steel space. You know, it, it, that circularity sort of crops up all the way through long player, it's composition, the way the composition works, the singing bowls, etc. And, and, you know, this, this circular listening room is, is perfect sort of physically and it's perfect acoustically as well. And then the other thing about the lighthouse is it has this big panoramic view of, of the river and then sky. And sure, there's a lot of buildings, but, you know, it, 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 again, you, it's interesting to focus on the river and the sky, which have always been there and which will be there for a lot longer than the buildings. You know, that since Long Player's been there, there's a lot of building gone on. You know, it's very interesting to look at photos from when the 1990s, beginning of, the, of this century, and and compare now, it's just unbelievable the amount of buildings going on. So it, just what you see sort of operates on different timescales too. So yeah, it's a, it's a perfect spot, a perfect place. And again, it, it's a bit like the singing bowls. If I'd actually thought this all out in a different way, I would have arrived at, okay, what I need is singing bowls and what I need is a lighthouse. But in both cases, it was, you know, serendipity played played a large role it's it's then you know it's the case of then you suddenly recognize something and 
and what it means to your ideas, how it resonates with the ideas and amplifies them. So, yeah, the lighthouse is a, it's an amazing space to occupy, and it's great to be part of the tradition of that space. You know, they're experimenting in a in a different way. I know it's not the case right now because of the pandemic, but normally is the lighthouse open to the public? Can people come in and listen to the music in the lighthouse? Yeah, it's uh, it's open every weekend generally. Not now, you're right. But yeah, it's open every weekend of the year, and people come and listen and look around. And some people spend hours, and some spend about thirty seconds. Can they go up to the lantern room? Yeah, they can. Yeah. So you come in. It's very beautiful. You you come in downstairs, and you go up these winding stairs, and there's a mezzanine. The mezzanine's very beautiful space where workshops and stuff would have been. So now it's big, big open space with beautiful wooden beams. And we have in the middle of that is a kind of two intersecting semicircular shelf systems, six shelves high, where all the singing bowls live um, that we use for live performances. And then beyond that, there's a shed, like an old potting shed, in which the music is created at the minute by a, an iPad. And uh, and also in there, there's another computer that streams it out onto the internet and stuff. Mm-hmm. And then and then you can go, you know, you go up another flight of stairs, same very circular tight stairs, uh, and you're in the lantern room. You can hear the music in the mezzanine drifting down, but you know when you go upstairs, you have this amazing experience of the, you know, the full frequency sound and the and the sort of panoramic view ever-changing. Well, I'd love to hear it there. It must be incredible. Well, I hope one day you get the chance. I hope so. Well, I've got a thousand, well, 980 years to get there, right? <laughs> well, maybe right. more. Right. Hopefully more, yeah. So are there historical exhibits there? Is there anything telling the history of the lighthouse? Uh, yeah, I mean, the whole site has a lot of signage about its history and objects and stuff, yeah. Okay. In terms of the lighthouse, not really. In, in the When you first go in, there's a couple of flags and boxes mm-hmm. and stuff but you know once you go up and into the realm of long player it's just about long player really and the website for long player is what longplayer.org longplayer.org which i've looked at it's really interesting and people can listen online through the website and they can listen on their iPhones or whatever yeah you can you can listen to the stream on any internet connected device but if you have an iPhone or you know an iPad, there's an app as well, and and for that that doesn't need an internet connection. That'll operate in any place or space. Is actually the music's been created inside the device. This is such a fascinating subject, but I have to keep bringing it back to the lighthouse because this is a podcast about lighthouses. But I have to say, your use of the lighthouse may be the most creative repurposing of a lighthouse that I've ever seen. It's fantastic. Well, that's good. And it just points out that there's no limit on how lighthouses can be repurposed. The limit is our imaginations. Well, that's like anything, I guess. Yeah, well, I guess that's true of anything. You're absolutely right. But I'm wondering if you have anything else in mind that relates to the lighthouse. Well, yeah, in fact, um, it's going to be a new project starting in late September, hopefully, at the lighthouse. It's... Because this is like the 
you know, Long Player's 20, year, 20 years old now. So we, we being the Long Player Trust who look after Long Player, had made a lot of plans for this year, different events and things, most of which have been cancelled or postponed, I should say. Right. Yeah, postponed rather than cancelled. But one, this one, hopefully will still go ahead. It's um, in collaboration with Art Angel, who originally commissioned Long Player. And um, I can't say too much about it because it's a, it's a secret. Oh, okay. It hasn't been announced yet. But it, it involves um, relighting the lighthouse. Ooh. It, in, well, but in a, in a way that inextricably, you know, like, the sound of long player and the light, will, you know, they, have, they will be working together. It's not just like stick a light in. It's like long player as in, in a form as, you know. I can't really spill <laughs> the beans. Wow. It's been a long player as light, really. That sounds really exciting. Yeah, so, um, and then, you know, other lighthouses, well, I mean, it's never happened, but I and we, the Trust, have always been very open to the idea of setting up listening posts in other lighthouses around the world. Just no one's ever said they're interested in us doing so. Well, I might be able to point you to some possibilities in the U.S. So if anyone's, you know, listening and they've got a lighthouse they want long player in, get in touch. Yeah, well, let's keep that in mind, and I hope we can stay in touch. I want to thank you for all you've done, both with the Pogues and with Long Player. It's had an impact on me and many other people. Have people commented on having an emotional reaction to Long Player? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people have all kinds of reactions. But uh, it, it is a thing people say, and it's not uncommon. And, you know, I think one side of it is when people really get this connection with sort of time, you know, like, and beyond one's mortality and back and forth. And, uh, but also there's something in the sound of singing bowls, which is a very, it, it, you know, they're used, they're used in like sonic healing and therapy and meditative uh, practices and stuff. And, and so, uh, you know, that, and I think that's down to just the sort of the, the, the nature of the sound and the frequencies that come out of them they affect you know they affect the the mind and they affect the body in very deep and positive ways i think maybe not for everyone but certainly for a lot of people mm-hmm. um no they're they're really remarkable uh, instruments really extraordinary um i you know i i think of them now in a sense you know, I've always been very interested in in uh, synthesizers, and I I think of them very much like they're tone generators, oscillators, Bronze Age oscillators. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, the way Long Player works is, in fact, you know, it is like a sort of it's like a very basic additive synthesizer, right. so it's like this Bronze Age synthesizer. Well, with that, it's just been wonderful talking with you. I really appreciate you giving me this time. This is absolutely fascinating. It would be fascinating whether or not you were doing this in a lighthouse. But again, this is a podcast about lighthouses. And I have to say again that it is, I think, the most interesting repurposing of a lighthouse I've ever encountered. So congratulations on this wonderful project. And again, 
Jim Finer, thank you very, very much. Thank you. Our thanks again to our guest, Jim Finer, creator of Long Player. You can learn more online at longplayer.org. You can listen to the Long Player music piece live streamed from Trinity Bowie Wharf Lighthouse through the website. There's also a Long Player app that enables you to listen with your smartphone. I strongly suggest that you check it out. I find it very relaxing and we can all use a little relaxation these days. Also, you can learn more about the Trinity Buoy Wharf itself at trinitybuoywharf.com. Thanks as always to all the members, volunteers, and staff of the U.S. Lighthouse Society, and to everyone everywhere who works to save lighthouses in any kind of history. We're all on the same team. And as always, thanks for listening and keep a good light.